One Week Season. Circle fam, welcome to the week 18, first ever week 18 edition of any of our podcasts because we did not used to have a week 18 of BNFL season, but week 18 of the Tuesday Inner Circle podcast. Apologies for last week. As you guys know, I was sick. I am still a little bit sick. If my talking sounds a little funny, it's because I have a, a throat lozenge in my mouth that is necessary to keep in to keep me from, from coughing throughout this podcast. But I am really excited about this week's podcast. We were going to do this last week and had to push it back to this week. But we had a couple of weeks ago, we had some really big wins from the OWS community. And a couple of those guys are hopping on today to talk through their rosters, but also I think more importantly to talk through process and approach and the way we all sort of take in information, see things and put it all together. So our first guest is going to be Billy Gableman, Stats ATL. And he and I were talking before we hopped on, on air, before we started recording, just about his process. And basically he, well, I'll let him talk about most of it, but he sees himself as a pretty casual DFS player in terms of his, his buy-in levels and his level of commitment and focus. But he was talking about the different voices that we've added on the site and which ones have helped him the most and some different voices off-site that have really helped him to grasp DFS theory and put all of this together for what was a 50K win a couple weekends ago on a $50 buy-in. So um, really cool conversation that we're going to get into kind of talking again through the roster, but also primarily through process, because I think what's cool about these things, we saw it with when Matthew Petrich hopped on to break down his 250K win earlier this season, but the being able to hear different people who are subscribers talk through their big wins and see that not everybody's working with 150 rosters, not everybody's working with a huge bankroll. People are working with good DFS theory and good information and taking what we provide at OWS from a, from a research standpoint, but more importantly, from a standpoint of how to play DFS and putting that together for these big wins. So uh, we're going to bring Billy on here in just a moment. Before we do, uh, we're down to 77 of those OWS for life memberships. So uh, again, you can find that on the on the inner circle page uh, uh, through the homepage of uh, one week season. And yeah, 77 of those left. And then on Thursday in the, in the angles email, we're opening that up to non inner circle members. So if you've been wanting to grab one of those, this would be a good time to do that 399 and you have OWS access for the rest of your life, which is pretty cool. Um, okay, with that, we are going to bring in Billy Stats ATL. Billy, you there? How you doing, man? JM, doing great, man. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year. Happy big win. Fifty k on a fifty dollar buy in. Um, that was your biggest DFS win to date. Is that right? Yeah, that was, that was my biggest uh, biggest win. I actually had a. A smaller bank earlier this year on a on a showdown slate, uh, just a three dollar single entry, but yeah, by by far the biggest, uh, my first five figure win. And it was a uh, correct me if I'm wrong. It was a fifty dollar single entry win, right? So it was it was your one roster in that tournament against everybody building one roster in that tournament. Is that correct? Yep, you got it, JM. That's right, typically so how I try to play. I like uh, the single entries or the three max. 
And so we were talking before we hopped on air and you were kind of walking through, and I thought this was really cool. You were walking through the number of rosters you put in and how you kind of shift up the number of rosters based on the week and what the week is providing. Uh, so go ahead, if you could just kind of talk through a, your, your typical buy-in level. And cause again, I think that that's really cool for subscribers to see and listeners to hear that, you know, again, as you, as you and I were talking about before we hopped on air, like people post their screenshots, but if they're putting in $5,000 or $10,000 in entries or $30,000 in entries, or even three or $4,000 in entries, two or $3,000 in entries, they can feel like, okay, well, that's great for them, but where are the wins with kind of different buy-in levels? And so uh, kind of talk through how you approach DFS and where that kind of fits into your life as a whole in terms of, you know, being focused on other things and, and not necessarily being like an all-in DFS player. Yeah, sure. So I would say uh, weekly, my, my rosters on a, you know, a Sunday main slate can vary from like one to two if I'm not in love with the slate or I can go up to, you know, we'll say seven or eight, if I feel like there's a few angles, uh, that I, that I think, uh, over time will be profitable. Um, you know, as you know, most weeks you, you lose, but, uh, or if we're building the way that I like to build most weeks, you'll lose. Um, and so for me, that really starts, uh, every week I kind of pull up on Tuesdays. I open up the DK app. And I just identify spots, game environments that I kind of like initially. And, and how that works for me is I definitely, I usually just pull up the app, go to the Sunday main slate and literally click on every single game. And I'll just start with the very first one that it lists at one o'clock. Um, and I'll pull that up every single position and just kind of get a feel for what I like potentially. And I usually do this all from my phone. Um, and on Sundays, I'll, you know, I'll spend some time on the computer building rosters. But generally, I just start with a note section in my phone. And I just kind of, you know, go through each game individually, position by position, and kind of see, you know, what I like from each one. And I think probably the very first, the very first start uh, for me is probably going over to, like, what used to be Rotowire or Rural World and, and making sure that there aren't any key injuries uh, that happened on Sunday or Monday that I may have missed because I... I try to watch a good number of the games, but I certainly don't watch them all. Um, and so just making sure there aren't any key injuries to kind of keep note of for me mentally during the week. And as I'm going through, you know, each little game individually on the app. Uh, let me, um, let me jump in. I'm going to jump in real quickly here. Cause I think this is interesting. You talk about a couple of things here that are really key. And I think are overlooked by DFS players in general, including OWS players. And it, it, I understand there's an information overload element. Like we give you guys so much information as listeners, like, Hey, here's all the different things that we talk about that we've accumulated knowledge over the years of how to play DFS. And we do these things and these things, but when we can kind of identify and hammer individual things that are more useful than other things, Matthew Petrich, uh, when he was talking about his big win, he talked about going through the way he does it is he goes through game by game early in the week and he makes his notes in the NFL ad, at the bottom of the NFL edge for his personal game notes that he saves to his OWS profile. And I've talked in the past about, you know, there have been times where I've used the OWS notes. There's been times where I've used my phone notes. There's been times when I've used a notebook. That's my, my preference when I don't have uh, ch children responsibilities um, at night. So hopefully a year or two from now, the kids will be old enough that I'll be back to a notebook, but uh, being able to like track thoughts and break things down from like a game by game level. And I think that 
one of the things that hampers a lot of DFS players is the slate is big. It's a big puzzle to break down. And so if you can get in there and say, okay, let me take this game by game, that makes such a difference because you're able to really identify your thoughts. Like as we talk about, one of the things that trips people up is a lot of the popular writers in fantasy and DFS, they're so focused on matchups. Oh, this wide receiver has got this great match against this cornerback. And what they fail to talk enough about is game environment and game flow. And that's why we focus so much on that because that's where points are really generated. And so if you can go game by game, I've talked about Sonic always builds at least one tournament roster around each game. Uh, I've gone through stretches even when doing single entry where I built at least one roster around each game. I always go game by game. And actually, Billy, I do the same way as you is right there in the DK app and just click on each individual game so that it forces all other games out of my mind. And I just think about that game. So I think that's really cool. I wanted to kind of highlight that. Um, I think it's a super sharp point in the process to take on as far as making the slate more manageable and being able to understand it a little bit better is taking those games game by game. So uh, I wanted to jump in with that. Let me turn it back over to you now. Jane, I got some background noise here. Let's just sit tight for just a second if we can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No worries. No worries. And um, hold on one second. I'm going to pause this or mute this to cough. Okay, I'm back. How are we doing that background? Yeah, I'm, I'm back. I'm, I'm good. They were, they were just making an announcement at the resort. All right, you're good. Go ahead. Um, yeah, so I think you made a great point there, uh, JM. And, and for me, I try, to, I try to keep out everybody else's thoughts until later in the week. I know you do a, a Tuesday pod. Um, you know, I'm on it right now. But uh, I try not to listen to those. Um, and same as even your angle spot. I try not to listen to them until Friday or Saturday. Um, just cause I, you know, and I try to stay off of, you know, Twitter and, you know, again, with the information overload, I, I want to just develop my own thoughts and how I'm seeing things, uh, before I, you know, start seeing how everybody else is seeing things. And I know that that's something in the past that, um, that you've always talked about over the years is, is trying to develop your own thoughts before you, you start listening to what everybody else has to yeah, say. Yeah. And one of the things uh, about that too is even if you're wrong, it's okay because you're building a different path. Like even if you're, even if your thoughts on a game aren't actually what's likeliest to happen, you're now thinking about this game differently than the field is thinking about it, which is going to make you money over time as long as you're in like a range of outcomes that's reasonable. And so, yeah, thinking through games on your own and that bubble sort of process is, is again, obviously extremely valuable. Um, yeah, awesome. Um, yeah, so typically, you know, I try to do, I try to do that on Tuesday or Wednesday. Um, you know, I have a, a full-time job, so it's just more of when I can, you know, find time. But generally, it's in, you know, Tuesday evening or Wednesday evening. I'll go through, spend an hour, um, go through each game individually and, and kind of, notate which game environments I like, um, or which, you know, which spots I think are, could be good, uh, as just kind of one-off plays where maybe I don't think the game environment is, is great to, you know, kind of do a, a game stack, but, you know, for one or two players, I think that they've got a solid job. So, uh, from there, I kind of notate all those guys. And then, uh, generally on, you know, we'll say Thursday or Friday, um, I try to read some of the content on OWS. You know, I listen to the angles pod. I listen to the Tuesday, uh, you know, your JM in their circle pod. Um, and then on Saturday, sometimes I'll, I'll try to, to catch the, the Saturday pod with high, low and X. A lot of times I don't actually catch that on Saturday, but, uh, I'll just listen to it on Sunday morning. Um, 
I try not to build any rosters until Sunday morning. Sometimes I'll, I'll start making some builds uh, during the day on Saturday, but you know, I try not to get anything, you know, kind of set in, set in the stone. And, you know, my girlfriend knows that on Sunday we're, we're not doing brunch until at least one o'clock. Cause that's, I would say that's probably if I spend six to eight hours a week on fantasy football, um, I'm spending one hour on Tuesday or Wednesday, and then I'm probably listening to, you know, some podcasts. A lot of times I'll listen to your podcast, um, the angles podcast, you know, on one, one 1.5 X speed, but I'm also, I'm also probably reading the, the OWS stuff at that same time. So I don't know, probably an hour on Tuesday, two to three hours, Thursday and Friday total. And then, you know, another three or four hours on Sunday morning leading up to lock. Um, so I definitely think it's more of a casual feel, but try to try to focus my main time on Sunday morning when, you know, you have as much information as possible. And it's not really until probably Saturday evening or Sunday morning that I'm even looking at what other people are are thinking or, you know, ownership projections to kind of see if, you know, the way that I'm seeing particular games or, you know, environments that I think could be overlooked by other people. You know, sometimes you pop on to the ownership projections or pop on to Discord on Saturday or, or Sunday morning and, you know, half the people are talking about, you know, the, you know, whatever, the Packers-Vikings game. And it's like, well, you know, shoot, that's the one I thought was going to be sneaky. Oh, it's going to be super popular. Maybe that's maybe that's not great in terms of an angle. So we'll look at some of the other ideas that I kind of had built up through Tuesday and then Thursday, Friday of, of listening to the pod and, and reading yours or Zandamir's or, you know, M Johnson, you know, getting other people's point of views on it, seeing if there's other angles that I'm not seeing. One of the things that I liked too, that you said was you tend to, you said sometimes it'll be like one or two entries, sometimes seven or eight entries. And it's less, I think a lot of people would think that that would be dictated by schedule, right? Like a busier week, you put in fewer entries, but you kind of talked about it. Like if you are seeing the, if, if the spots that you're seeing that you really like are kind of a step ahead of other spots that you're seeing, and then you start looking at the group think later in the week and everybody else is also seeing things that way that you're likelier to scale back your play that week and basically say, well, rather than going to what I feel is a suboptimal spot or a spot that's not standing out to me and feeling like I'm just guessing. Instead, I will say, okay, I don't have as big of an edge this week, so I won't play as much this week. I think that takes a lot of discipline. And also it's a really sharp way to approach things because if we talk about DFS being a game of small edges and you just build up as many small edges as you can, well, literally just avoiding the slates that where you feel you don't have as big of an edge saves you money over time and makes those profitable weeks that much more profitable. Um, are there any specifics that you want to talk about on that or anything you want to elaborate on there? No, I, th- I think it nailed pretty much it. Um, so I would say, you know, just kind of hitting on for more of the subscribers um, on a week where, you know, I don't feel like I'm seeing things differently than kind of the masses. I'll, I'll still play two or three rosters, but I'll, I'll play a $5 single entry or a $12 single entry. Um, maybe a $3 singer entry. So, you know, I'll be in for 20 bucks for the, for the week. And I'm still feel like I'm getting some action. I feel like I'm still watching and I'm still cheering for my guys. Um, if, you know, come Saturday night, Sunday morning, um, I feel like I'm seeing three or four games that I feel like have a possibility to, to be, we'll say under owned or not as popular by the masses. 
um, I, I'll build seven or eight rosters um, all in, uh, you know, single entry or three max. Um, so, you know, maybe I'll get a hundred, hundred and fifty dollars into play that week playing a $50 single entry, a $27 single entry. Um, I like the $33 three max as well. And then, you know, obviously there's a $12 single entry of $5. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll put somewhere between two to three up to maybe eight rosters in play for the week. If, if, you know, kind of the stars align and, you know, there's uh, several different, you know, lines that I want to take that are not going to be super popular. So you picked up 50 K in week, I guess that was week 15 now, or yeah, is that right? Week 15. Um, and you yeah, had two weeks what, a couple, ago, yeah. couple hundred bucks in play that weekend. Uh, so that was a week that I had, I think that I had six rosters in play. So, um, probably somewhere about 125 bucks in play that week. That's pretty amazing. That's phenomenal. Um, yeah, I love seeing that. And, and I think one of the things that's really cool is you and I were talking about this before we got on air, but just the different, one of the things that I think really ham, hamstrung OWS in the early years was that the site was just me. And so there was two things there. One was I had kind of built my reputation on finding plays that other people weren't on. But if I'm the only person providing research and thoughts on a slate, it becomes like a little bit more, there's a little bit more pull to go mainstream and say, okay, here are the sharpest on paper plays on the slate. And so as we've seen, like, as we've built up the site more, I've been able to move away from being as focused on that. But more importantly, what I said to you before we hopped on air was for me, like when I first started studying writing, if a writer said that they do something a certain way, I would process that as, okay, this is the way to do this. This is the way I should do this. And then as you start studying 50 writers, 75 writers, 100 writers, you start realizing, okay, everybody's doing what they are finding works best for them. And here are some, th some things I can pull from different people. And so one of the things that I love about pulling you onto this show, and we're going to have Gunslinger on after you, is getting different voices that talk about, hey, here's how I play, right? So like maybe JM has 30 or 40 hours a week to research and all this because this is my full-time job and I'm also providing this for you guys. But for other people who have less time, this is how I approach it. Or for people who are kind of playing with different levels of intensity in DFS, this is how I approach things. Because I think, you know, you talking about an hour or two on Tuesday and a couple hours later in the week and then Sunday morning, I think a lot of other quote casual players are like trying to think through the games all the time, which there's value in that as well. But there's also value in just saying, okay, look, I have these pools of time where I focus fully on DFS and the rest of the time I'm kind of letting those pools refill um, so I think it's cool to get, you know, it was, it's been awesome to add Zandemir, to add Hilo, to add Mike, to add Poppy, to add Sonic, to add all these people with different perspectives on DFS. They were all trying to scale the same mountain and get to the same pinnacle. And the routes kind of, uh, there, it's like, there's routes along the mountain that are, we're all going to be on the same route for stretches of time, but then there's going to be other patches where it's like, okay, this is the way up that makes the most sense to me. This is the way up that makes the most sense to me. So you had talked about, um, finding a couple of voices that were super valuable for you. Uh, one of whom is on the site, one of whom is not on the site, uh, or I guess, you know, he's kind of connected to the site. He's a subscriber and, and a friend of the site, but um, you want to talk a little bit about the, who those guys are and what, what you've sort of picked up from them in terms of DFS play that's really helped you develop your DFS theory beyond like, okay, I subscribe to OWS. This is what JM says, but also here's what this guy says on OWS. Here's what this guy says off of OWS. And these are the different pieces that make sense the most to me. Yeah, sure. 
so, you know, I've, I've been a subscriber of yours for a bunch of years now, and I've always enjoyed the way that, you know, you help, you know, to me, I feel like you have helped me kind of think for myself. Um, you know, it's kind of that, you know, teach a man to fish type deal instead of just catching a fish. You know, I, I've never felt like, uh, even in your old days prior to OWS, you were never like, Hey, here's some picks. It was always more, this is how I'm talking through and I'm, I'm thinking through the game. So to me, that's been, that's been very helpful. Um, this year though, you know, you added a bunch of guys, as you mentioned to the site, and I try to read all of their content, um, you know, each week, um, in terms of the contributors, I feel like, uh, M Johnson, and we've, we've chatted a bunch on discord has been helpful to me just because I know he plays a lot of kind of single entry three max tournaments as well. And so I like getting his thoughts on that. Um, but outside of the site, um, you did a pod early in the earlier in the year with blender HD. And I guess for those subscribers, you know, who are not as familiar with him, he has a YouTube channel that you can watch a whole bunch of his other kind of theory of DFS, I think is actually what his like course is called. Um, I haven't subscribed to his course or anything. I've just listened to a couple of his videos and I think he's actually got a podcast as well. I, I haven't subscribed to it, but, um, you know, I think that the, listening to his, some of his stuff for me just really clicked into how my mind started to process, um, in DFS and, and being more of a game theory versus just more of, Hey, I'm, I'm picking some players that I like, or I like a little bit of these game environments. And after, you know, hearing what he had to say on it a lot, a lot of the information that you say a lot of the weeks really hit home a little bit more, especially when you do, uh, I think it's in the angles, you do the, the bottom up build and how we're talking about, hey, I picked this player because and how it factors in to several other players where on the surface, it just looks like, hey, this is just kind of a one off kind of getting into a little bit more of the deeper levels. Um you know, and, and for Blender, he kind of kind of talks about that as well. And, you know, his big thing is it's lineups. It's not players, it's lineups. And going through each, you know, lineup and thinking through, as you would say, you know, what do you win when you win? So if things were to break my way on this roster, what does that look like for, you know, not necessarily who am I fading, but what does that look like for some of the other guys that on this roster where, you know, playing this defense is kind of betting on a popular running back from the other team probably isn't, you know, doing all that well. So, you know, I feel like this year um, it's really allowed me to, to put it all together. Um, you know, I had like, a, it was either like a six or an $8,000 win like two or three years ago. And then the last two years has just been kind of getting by coasting, you know, some wins, but nothing of, of substance. And then earlier this year I had a, you know, a $3 win in a, a single entry for a showdown on like week four, it was chargers Raiders. Um, and then obviously this win as well. It's just, I feel like it's got me thinking the, the, the strategy totally differently. Um, and you know, in your words, it's got me playing kind of playing for first and playing fearlessly now looking at it and saying, Oh, this roster has got me a little queasy. I don't really love all these spots. You know, I feel like if you're looking at, you know, and this is pretty high level and you know, 10,000 foot view, but if you're looking at your roster and you don't have any of those spots where you're just like, Oh yeah, this is, you know, a marginal play, or this is, you know, a low likelihood play that roster probably has 0% chance of winning. So true. Yeah. Those uncomfortable plays are kind of the way I gauge rosters. And it's what Zanamir and I talked about this last week 
when he had his, his 100K win, we were talking about how much easier it is after a win to play fearlessly and why DFS players do tend to be a little bit streaky is because that level of discomfort, you get more and more willing to embrace it. Um, this last week, I was kind of out of the running after the early games because I had, you know, had focused on the chiefs Bengals game, but it stacked up as you, as you guys listening might've uh, guessed, I'd stacked up Mahomes and Hill and, and Darrell Williams, Daryl Williams. And instead of stacking up the, the burrow and chase side of that, but I still had a shot at finishing in the money because I had three players going late and at running back, I had Eli Mitchell and Deandre Swift. And I started thinking, okay, well, what changes do I make? Well, the changes I should have made was go from a popular DeAndre Swift up to, or a little bit more popular DeAndre Swift, up to an unpopular Rashad Penny for 100 more. Instead, what I ended up doing was taking the even safer route and switching from Eli Mitchell down to Chase Edmonds. James Conner was out. I figured Chase Edmonds would be lower owned because that news came out late. But that's a much safer play than going with Eli Mitchell, who takes points away from Trey Lance. And because of him coming back from injury with workload uncertainty, nobody's going to be on him. DeAndre Swift was coming back from injury, but people weren't concerned about workload uncertainty. And so people were on him. And so instead of making the fearless move of saying, okay, Rashad Penny and Eli Mitchell, I ended up moving off of Eli Mitchell and going Chase Edmonds and, uh, and DeAndre Swift, which was the difference between cashing and not cashing. So not, not a super expensive lesson, but it's just another reminder of like, okay, what play makes you feel most uncomfortable as opposed to what play makes you feel most comfortable, which play is easiest to rationalize and, and break down and talk through. Um, for anybody who is not familiar with Blender HD, yeah, it's the theory of DFS podcast is his podcast. He also has a masterclass course on his website that is extremely valuable. I've, I've taken that course myself. And I think that Blender's, Blender stuff complements OWS's stuff really well in terms of, it talks about a lot of the same things, but from different angles. And so it says a lot of the same things differently. And so by kind of absorbing that information, it, it can help you see things a little bit differently. Uh, so Billy, before we get out of here, I, I do want to take a look at the roster that you had that ended up taking down this huge win. And the roster, so again, this is week 15. This was the uh, Ravens versus Packers game where Huntley was super low owned and you had uh, James Robinson, who was obviously popular that week against uh, Houston. You had Brandon Cooks as the bring back, which if you guys recall, that was a, a 30 plus point game for Brandon Cooks and ended up being by far the sharpest way to build around that popular J Rob play. Um, you had Jeff Wilson versus Atlanta, which was uh, a lower owned running back. I think he came in about 10 or 11% owned on your roster and uh, obviously, you know, a, a team with a high total and a, a big favorite, right? You take the running back. And I think a lot of people get scared off the Jeff Wilson play because it's a yardage and touchdown back, which is funny because Jonathan Taylor's a yardage and touchdown back, right? And way more expensive, but there's like validation that, okay, he hits this often. And so people have a hard time going to the play like Jeff Wilson or like Damian Harris or these guys who don't have that consistent background of, of hitting. So I thought that was a super sharp way to type the running back position there. And then uh, Amon Ross St. Brown, who again was before ownership started spiking before people really started jumping on that train. And then my favorite part of this roster, actually three pieces that were my favorite part of this roster. One, the Steelers defense. I talked about the Steelers defense a lot that week and then didn't end up playing them. And the roster that I had that would have done really well that week had the Steelers defense and I couldn't bring myself to play them. And then you pull, pulled off the, uh, not just Devontae Adams bring back on the Huntley and Mark Andrews build, 
but Devontae Adams plus Marquez Valdez Scantling, which I think is a super sharp way to build. We've talked about that earlier this season and kind of separate your ownership of Devontae Adams while also correlating nicely. So uh, I want to talk to you about just like how that roster came together and what your thought process was. And then also like, were, were there any points of discomfort that you were like, I don't know if I can put this roster in play or had you kind of developed your play to a point where you felt some discomfort, but you're just like, okay, that's perfect. Let's put it in and see what happens. Yeah, sure. Um, so, so I, I think I probably started, you know, uh, my, my thoughts on the roster kind of liking the game environment, you know, on Tuesday as I, I'm going through looking at all the, all the games. Um, and in my mind, as I was kind of putting the pieces together, I actually started with probably the more obvious build of, of, you know, Rogers and Devante. Um, and then as I got later into the week, um, you know, looking at ownership projections, he was projecting as, you know, one of the two or three highest quarterbacks that week. Like, that was, week 15 was the week that everybody was paying up for either him or Murray. Everybody was paying up the quarterback. And so he ended up, you know, in hindsight, he ended up being 17% owned. And I think he was the highest or second highest owned guy. Um, so once I kind of saw that he was going to be really highly owned, I still liked the game environment. So, you know, I started looking at, at Huntley, who was, you know, $2,100 less. And, you know, I kind of figured with Lamar being questionable and he, you know, this was the later game and this was a 425 start. So just generally when you have some uncertainty and player news in a later game, it can just be so much more advantageous. So, uh, you know, uh, the roster had, I think five players that were in the later game. So, um, I tried to leave myself with some flexibility that if Lamar started, I felt like he was going to be much lower owned, uh, than Aaron Rodgers just because of the uncertainty on the news. So, I tried to leave myself with some, some wiggle room to build if, you know, Lamar was starting. Uh, so I opted this, you know, to, to build initially with Huntley, who was, you know, significantly cheaper and much less owned. He actually ended up coming in at like right at four or 4.1%, um, which is just crazy low for, you know, what I thought his upside could be. Um, and I remembered, you know, kind of earlier in the week, I think it was on Thursday or Friday, um, you actually talked up potentially using Huntley naked and running it back with, you know, Adams and Lazard. Um, so I, you know, I played around a little bit with that and, you know, as a starting point, um, but I, I had kind of probably previously done some research on builds with, you know, MBS and, and Adams. Um, and for 900 more, I, you know, kind of remembered you saying that MBS, uh, and Adams actually hit together when, when they both hit ceiling games. So I went and I did some kind of, you know, some game logs of this year and last year, and that definitely was the case. So at, at 900 more, I felt like MBS had just so much more upside than Lazard. So I kind of put the two of them in, uh, as bringbacks. Um, and I, I can't remember if it was a previous pod with you, or maybe it was with Cubs fan or Brandon Adams had done some research on, on how playing a running quarterback naked was generally a mistake. Because even if they have their ceiling game, they're typically bringing, you know, one pass catcher along with them. Uh, and so in the previous, I think it was previous two games with Huntley had started earlier this year. Um, you know, he, he was really targeting um, you know, the tight end. I can't think of his name right now. Um, and so I was, I was just like, oh, we're, yeah, Mark Andrews, sorry. Um, so, you know, I just kind of pencil that in as my starting point. So let's go Huntley and, and Andrews and we'll bring it back with Adams and Andy. Yes. Um, and I felt like 
just just that combination of four players was contrarian or queasy or uncomfortable enough that I could build, you know, with James Robinson, I could build other, um, you know, kind of better on paper plays or best on paper plays, as you say. Um, and I felt like just with those four player block pieces with, especially with Huntley likely being so low owned, especially with a double bring back of Adams and MVS, that that was just going to be so contrarian already that I really didn't need to really get too crazy in a 7,000 entry tournament. So yeah, uh, at that point, I kind of shipped on this roster too. You've got Devontae Adams is 46% owned and, and Blender talks about this a lot as well, but the and Hilo talks about this a lot on the Saturday podcast, but the thinking for a lot of people for the average DFS player is like, okay, Devontae Adams is 46% owned. Do I play him or not play him? But you pair him with a 2.4% owned MVS. So we already now know that if this hits the right way, you're only competing against 2.4% of the field. And that would be if everybody with MVS also had Devontae Adams, which is almost certainly not going to be the case. And so you're, you're kind of putting yourself and then Huntley at 4.2% owned. And so all of a sudden you're in this position where yes, you have a 63% owned James Robinson and you have a 46% owned Devontae Adams. And yet your main part of this bill, the main bet you're making, which is, Ravens versus Packers becomes one of the highest scoring games of the weekend becomes one of the had to have it games you're building so that if that one bet becomes right, you're kind of the only roster that takes full advantage of it in this exact way. And so uh, again, like you said, from there, you can really do whatever you want to do. There's not much blocking you from that point forward as far as like, Oh, well, do I have to think about ownership here? Do I have to be different here? Because you've placed this one bet on this one way for this game to play out. And if it plays out, We've seen it the last few weeks. We saw it with uh, Huntley against uh, the Packers. Then we saw it a week later with Burrow against the Ravens. Then we saw it last week with Burrow against the Chiefs. Like these things that can blow up so much bigger than the field is expecting. Like Huntley was about 5K that week and he put up 35.9 points. Mark Andrews put up 38.6 points. Like if you don't have those two guys, you're now out of it. And so you had those two guys and we're building around it differently than the field. And now all of a sudden you're, you're separated from everybody. And so I think that's one of the big keys that I think OWS members, especially inner circle members, probably starting to really grasp by this point, but that our competition really doesn't grasp. And so I think it's a super sharp way to look at things is like, hey, look, yeah, I've got Devontae Adams, but Devontae Adams is part of this low owned stack combinatorially. This salary is being spent in a very different way than the field. And that now allows me to do kind of whatever I want on the rest of this roster. Yeah. And and that was a spot that I kind of identified early in the week that I liked. And uh, I actually had a, a similar roster, not really all that similar, to be honest, but it, it started with the same player block of those same four players in a $5 single entry. Um, and I, I avoided James Robinson in that. Um, and I, I just, you know, as you said, I, I felt like that player block was unique enough. And I, and I liked that game environment. So I actually built two rosters around that in different contests. And the the five dollar one, I think, ended up winning like a hundred bucks. I but it, you know, I I had a couple of uh, snowflakes uh, on that roster. Whereas this one, I, I just got a, a better combination and you know more flames, as is we like to see when we open up the phone app. So before we get out of here, how big is your player pool typically? 
And do you have any like sort of rigorous process for narrowing it down or is it more by feel in terms of like, you said you go through the games and you kind of try to identify the games that stand out to you and then the one-off plays from other spots. Is there anything in there beyond what you think people typically think about or is it just kind of the typical like, okay, what makes the most sense from finding games that can go off in ways that people won't be on them and then finding other players that just make sense? Um, yeah, I think, I think it's a combination of that. I mean, you know, you hear from a lot of, you know, basically every OWS um, contributor that, you know, the popular plays, you know, the chalk, it's popular for a reason because a lot of the plays are the best on paper plays. Um, and so to me, I try to identify a few of those on my own in terms of what I think are some good one-offs, um, you know, going game by game. And I would say in general, I probably identify, we'll say three or four quarterbacks that I like their game environment. In general, it's probably five to eight running backs. Um, you know, and, and in general, I, I am trying to, you know, to me, I don't love the tight end position. So when I'm building game stacks, generally I am including the tight end as, as part of that game stack. Um, I also think it's kind of super sharp, even though this roster didn't have it. Uh, I, I've seen it, you know, be profitable for me to pair uh, if I'm playing a quarterback and his wide receiver instead of playing a second wide receiver or the tight end to play his running back uh, on on that same team. So you know, a three-one stack with a bring back um, where one of the players is a running back, um, and that helps me kind of keep my my player pool kind of condensed. I, I would say total if, you know, we're excluding defense, typically I'd probably identify, you know, four to five defenses that I, you know, am okay with. And generally they're in different price ranges. And a lot of times we just end up with whichever one of those five fits salary wise, you know, one or two of them will be a payup. One of them will be kind of, you know, the Steelers in this case, we're right at three K kind of right in the middle. And then I'll, I'll try to identify one cheaper defense where I don't have to rebuild a whole roster. Um, I can just plug in a 2200 a $2,400 defense and just, you know, accept the variance that maybe that defense will get me eight to 10 points and that will be enough. Yeah. A, a couple of things on what you were talking about there. One, if you study a lot of first place rosters or sharp, sharp DFS players, DFS players, let's take Osmo, for example, DFS players who you see at the top most frequently and especially DFS players who are playing primarily based off of DFS theory as opposed to sports knowledge. What you'll see is a couple of things. One, you will see them not trying to outproduce the field on the most obvious chalk. So like the James Robinson this week in the in question week 15 where James Robinson was over 60% owned, I had laid out the reasons why James Robinson wasn't as strong of a play as the field was going to assume. And yet the reasons why I was still going to be playing him anyway. And I think that there's this, this tendency to say, look, like the average DFS player, that's where they're trying to outsmart the field is on these little one-off plays. And they're like, okay, everybody's on James Robinson. He's the best play, but maybe he fails. And so let me try to capitalize on that. And what you see most sharp DFS players doing is saying, look, I'll just ride the chalk in the most obvious spots and not use that as my point where I'm trying to beat the field. And where I will try to beat the field is with better stacks in the field. And then what you also see, Osmo in particular, you see a lot of 
three one stacks where the three is quarterback running back and wide receiver and what that does is that takes out some of the guesswork and you're able to just say look i am betting on the touchdowns from this team and if one or two of them come on the ground and three come through the air i'm in great shape if the running back ends up catching a touchdown pass, all the better. But we started seeing it in 2016 with the Steelers, the Le'Veon Bell, Antonio Brown, Ben Roethlisberger stacks. But people started realizing, okay, look, if you bet on a whole offense and just get their offensive touchdowns, and that team scores a lot more touchdowns than any of the other teams, you're way ahead of the field. And so that that looping a running back in thing is super sharp. And again, something you see a lot of when you study top rosters, um, just because of the way that it makes sense as far as Yes, if you can outguess the field on chalk, you're probably going to win. But over time, that's not going to be your most profitable path. Your most profitable path is going to be, look, if this is pretty clear, good chalk, let me not overthink it. Let me be willing to play it. Or let me attack those rosters in some way with like, okay, if this player, if this popular player fails, who on his team succeeds, so on and so forth. Um, and then, yeah, like you said, that that 3-1 with the running back is, again, a really sharp way to do that. Um, I wish we had like two hours because I feel like you and I could talk about this stuff for uh, probably hours on end. But do you have anything else that you want to add? Because we got to get out of here um, and get to the next segment. But anything that you want to add before we get out of here? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think for, you know, for I, I, again, view myself as a pretty casual DFS player. And so I feel like, you know, a decent number of the OWS subscribers probably aren't doing this for a living. and uh, you know, obviously some of them are, but I think it's important for to people to know that like, for me, I play the three primetime showdowns as well as the main slate every week. So, you know, through whatever, 17 weeks here, I've probably put in, you know, 60 slates, 70 slates, something like that over time. And I'm a loser on 90% of them. Um, and I feel like if you're playing for first and you're, you know, you're building fearlessly and you're, you know, you're doing all the things that to me, from what I've learned from you, and the rest of the contributors and, you know, even through people's thoughts on Discord and through Blender, you really should be losing most of the time if you're, if, to me, if you're playing it properly. Um, and so if you're, I feel like if you're building a lot of your lineups, uh, and again, I'm not a professional at this, but if you're building a lot of your lineups where you're consistently really close to the cash line or you're min casting a lot, and I was doing that for years where, you know, every season I, I, you know, I, I'd have an occasional tournament win, but most weeks I would come close to breaking even, or I'd lose a little bit of money. And I thought that, Oh, I'm, I must be close. I, I think that if you're doing that, you know, in hindsight, now, years later, I think that you're totally doing it wrong. Um, you're just, you're just bleeding away money every single week with no real shot at first place. Um, that's, so that's, um, to me, that's real talk because yep. it's, it's so true. And, the trap is if you're consistently cashing, it's easy to look at the roster and say, okay, if I'd gotten these three spots changed over to this, or these two spots changed over to this, or these four spots changed over to this, the results different. But mathematically, it's it's so difficult to get those three additional spots correct or four additional spots correct. And so it traps people into thinking, okay, I must be close. Let me continue along this path. And they kind of just keep staying in that, that little bumper range that you that everybody else is trying to hop over to get to first place. And, and yeah, breaking out of that mindset is so key for sure. Yeah. And it, it was a new saying for, for you, I think, this this year. But it's, uh, you know, you, and you said it a few times on the pod, you know, what do you win when you win? Um, 
you know, you got to play those uncomfortable situations to, to try to win. And uh, I guess the last thing I'll do is uh, I, I will plug my, uh, my socials. Um, you know, I uh, stat ATL on, on DK and in discord and uh, I play a lot of golf. Uh, so four like F O R E what you yell when you hit a lot of bad shots, which I certainly do uh, for bourbon and golf uh, on Instagram. And nothing on Twitter. And uh, I think it's W Gableman G A B E L M A N on Twitter. Oh, I already um, I already follow you on uh, Twitter, then, don't I? <laughs> you do. All right, do. right on. Nice. Awesome, man. Well, thanks for having me. Pleasure uh, talking to you, and look forward to listening to uh, to you and Gunslinger uh, later on in the week on when the pod is out. And uh, you know, hope to see you guys on the top of the leaderboard again. Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, really appreciate the time. And uh, we will see you on the site. And, and listeners, uh, we will be back here in just a second with Gunslinger. Welcome back, Inner Circle fam. Welcome back for uh, me. For you guys, it's been one or two seconds. But I am back with Gunslinger, David, who is actually has a really interesting DFS story. And I think as we talked about in the first half of this podcast, one of the things that's really cool to me for listeners being able to hear these winner stories is the different perspectives of how somebody plays, what their DFS journey is, what type of, what amount of time they put in, how much they put in in entry fees and recognizing the differences kind of across the board that, again, as I said before, there are different paths to the top of this mountain. And the best thing we can do is Obviously, if you're an inner circle, you're getting a lot of focus on the foundational stuff. So the foundational stuff is foundational. You want to hold on to that foundational stuff. But as far as what the structure is that you're building on top of that foundation, there are different things that you're going to pull from different players. And so getting thoughts from Zandamir and Hilo and Mike and Sonic and all these different guys is super valuable, but also getting thoughts from other inner circle members who have had big DFS wins can have a lot of value as well, because there's that element of okay, here's something that works for this person and that actually clicks in my brain. Here's something that makes sense for me. Or like Billy was talking about, listening to Blender HD and saying, okay, here's stuff from Blender that is sort of the same stuff that JM says, but it illuminates it for me in a different way. And so um, we're going to bring in Gunslinger. Most of you guys probably know Gunslinger from Discord and from OWS in general, but uh, Gunslinger with the huge win, same weekend as Billy's big win with basically the same roster instead of, MVS and Steelers. It was Devontae Parker and Cowboys defense. Uh, but I want to bring Billy or bring David in. And same thing as with Billy. Talk, focus more on DFS process, DFS journey, DFS mindset to sort of uncover the pieces that you know we as listeners can pull into our own play and say, okay, here's something that makes sense for me. Here's something I can use. So, uh, David, welcome to the pod. And I want to start out with your journey into DFS, because it's a very interesting journey and very unique journey in terms of how it sort of sets you up for success in DFS. So why don't you jump in and kind of start out by telling us about how you got into DFS and, and what you were doing for a living before that and since then as well. Hello, everybody. I want to say hello to the OWS family. I love hanging out with all you guys in Discord. And JM, I, I can't tell you how much I love your podcast and how valuable they've been to me and getting better at DFS. So I'm a professional poker player. Uh, I graduated University of Georgia in 1996. My last year, I was double dipping, going to classes and playing poker all night. And uh, 
decided to give poker a shot before, you know, and see if I could make it instead of taking a real job, which would probably would have been as a psychologist. And I had success right away. Um, you know, poker's up and down. So I've had my good years and bad years. Uh, but I played home games and cash games for years, uh, dipped into online a little when it grew um, and started playing tournaments in 2005 at the World Series of Poker. Um, had a lot of success over the years, uh, won the, the Poker Players Championship in 2009 for 1.2 million or so. I had backers, obviously. It's a bit very expensive $50,000 buy-in. And I've won a couple of bracelets since then and have been real successful with poker, um, something I put a lot of work into. Mostly focused on mixed games, but I play everything. Now, since COVID, um, my uh, my wife, unfortunately, lost both her parents to COVID. Um, I have a heart condition and my wife has a liver condition, even though we're not that old. Um, we have to be careful. So I basically decided it wasn't worth the risk. Um, there's not a, really a more dangerous activity than poker for COVID. So um, I had already been playing DFS a little bit. Uh, let me give you a background on that. Um, about five, six years ago when DraftKings was running all those crazy commercials, I was in Las Vegas playing poker. And I was like, well, hey, uh, I'm a professional gambler. I'd played a little fantasy football and fantasy baseball in the past. Um I know the NBA, I should be able to crush this. So I was doing well at the time. So I put like $4,000 in an NBA the first very night I played it, uh, thinking I knew what I was doing. I knew nothing about DSS theory. Obviously, I got destroyed over the next few weeks um, and realized, well, this is just silly. Um, either I need to invest just a tiny bit for entertainment or I got to get better. So I was playing with a guy named Matt Smith named Salmonol. Um, most of you guys probably know him. I think he's won the Millionaire Maker twice. And he actually, uh, I think, think Salmonol won the first Millie Maker ever as well. Uh, the very first time they ever ran it back in 2015. I could have that wrong, but pretty sure that that's accurate. That's probably right. And uh, he's a really nice guy. We used to organize mixed games and play together. And uh, he he set me up with uh, with Rotor Grinders and, and got me on DraftKings basically the first time. I think the first thing I played was the Masters one of those years back then. And I wish I could remember what year, but it was, uh, probably like 2013 or something like that or 14. Um, so uh, I I. Uh, through Rotor Grinders, I read JM's articles. Um, I found it to be the most valuable content on the site. And when OWS was founded, um, I, I moved over to OWS. And that coincided with me. I live in North Georgia, and the, uh, the casinos in North Carolina are a couple hours away. So I used to always listen to all the podcasts and everything on my drive back and forth from the casino. Um, and that gave me a lot of time to think and absorb DFS theory, gradually get better and better. Um, I was losing, uh, but nothing much. I would just put in a, a couple hundred dollars every week. Um, most of the time I'd get something back. Um, so I don't know, maybe I was losing like a thousand bucks a year or something like that. Uh, but I could feel myself getting better. And uh, when COVID came around, uh, like I'd said before, um, I decided to not play live poker anymore so that left me with more time to really kind of dig deeply into dfs um i started watching more games which i think uh as i'll get to gets got way more beneficial for me so uh absorbing all the content on w ows and watching the games um i kind of realized that you you know there's amazing content on on ows but if you take 
every single thing that that all the you know the quote professionals are giving you, which is super sharp information. Um, but it's going to be hard to take that and be unique enough to win a tournament like the Millie Maker, or like the play action with hundreds of thousands of people. So I wanted to take what I was learning from them, add a little bit of the the talent that I have through all the years of poker and, and having good instincts. Um, but it couldn't just be like random talent. I, I would take something that I, I picked up from watching one of the games. And in this particular case, I had watched Huntley play and I was like, you know, most backups stink. But this guy, he's actually like 80 or 90 percent of Lamar Jackson and he's priced way lower. And he's not going to be that popular. And this is just one of those plays that comes up a few times a year. That's just a, a super play. And that was the anchor of, you know, him to Andrews, um, which I have to credit the uh, the NFL edge for for pointing out how much Huntley liked to go to Andrews. Yeah, the uh, a couple of things here. One of the things that I think is really interesting with your background in poker is there are ups and downs in DFS. You know, in the, in the last segment, Billy was basically talking about that when he used to be consistently cashing or right on the cash line in tournaments, he thought that he was playing well and then has realized in retrospect that he really never had any shot at first place and was just slowly bleeding out money and being trapped into thinking, okay, well, I, I must be close because I'm cashing. And the shift to being able to say, you know, as, as he said, he's probably probably played about 60 slates this year and been unprofitable on about 90% of them. And one of the things with a poker background is you get a lot more used to those ups and downs and the, and the swings and understanding what they mean. And also the patience, like you said, kind of lowering your buy-in level for a, a long time and losing money, but feeling like you could feel yourself getting better and seeing things differently. Uh, are there any, any like I guess I'll say speed bumps that you hit in your poker journey or your DFS journey that kind of made it difficult for you to balance that give and take of putting money into action, or has that always been just something that you've been naturally good at? Uh, definitely less so with poker. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I've gotten better at DFS, but I'm still, you know, a hundred times better poker player than, than a DFS player. And, uh, but I've, I've definitely had my ups and downs bankroll wise uh, from because, you know, that's just the way poker is. Um, and that it really set me up for for learning how to manage uh, both emotions and decisions in DFS um, with the poker. Like I would have in cash games, I would win most of the time, but then I'd move up to like a higher limit and and be against better players or just run into variance and lose. Um, and I'd go through a cycle of going up and down and up and down. And when the tournaments came around, uh, I had a good friend who most people have probably heard of named Josh Arie, um, who is uh, who suggested to me to get backers for the tournaments. He believed in my talent. He was one of my backers. And uh, because the, the amount of money uh, that you put into the, like the World Series of Poker is immense. And no matter how well you play, you can have a losing year or even a losing two or three year stretch. Um, I haven't had that personally, but um, it can definitely happen. And so you're putting up anywhere from like 50,000 to 200,000 over a World Series of Poker. Uh, most people don't have that kind of money. Um, so I would get backers and, and and the tournament experience is in a lot of ways similar to the tournament experience in DFS. And as I was getting better, I could see that I, you know, I was starting to 
build rosters that were sharp and 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 having some cracks at at first place. I learned a lot from Zandemir's showdowns, uh, both from his write up and then also from the you know the attitude of having to kind of find a low owned gem in order to uh, to get first place and not have to split it with a lot of people. Um, I learned a lot from the live drafts that that JM suggested on his podcast. I've been doing that all year. Um, and I would say to my wife, uh, I know I'm going to hit a big score, you know, six figures or more at some point. Now, I didn't know it, if it was going to take a year, three years or 10 years. And I was prepared for it to, to take 10 years because that's just the way, you know, the math of it works. Even if you have the way the best of it, when you're trying to win a tournament with hundreds of thousands of people in it, it it's not going to happen that often. Yeah, I, I think that that level, not not necessarily of confidence, because confidence can confidence can be misplaced, but that that uh, rooted confidence where you're like, okay, I understand that I'm playing well. I understand that the numbers are going to work out for me over time can make a big difference. I mean, I can't tell you how many millimaker winners were certain that they were going to win the millimaker at some point. And that they didn't win because they were certain they were going to win, but they were playing a particular way because they had that level of confidence and understanding of, look, the numbers say this, it might take a while, but also I'm playing in this particular way that's giving me an edge over time. And this will play out in my favor over time. And I think that's a valuable mindset to be able to develop and tap into. And and I think that some of it comes with experience, but also kind of taking those strides that you're making as a DFS player and saying, okay, well, I see that I'm doing this well, or I'm learning these things, or I'm gaining edges in these areas. Um, I think it was interesting you talking about watching the games, because that was one of the things I wanted to ask you is you told me before we hopped on air that because of not playing uh, live poker right now, you're basically putting in like 30 hours a week in DFS. And so I wanted to know kind of what are some of the ways that, you use that time. And then you talking about watching games. One of the questions that I've gotten a lot over the years is what should I watch for while watching games? And I think that the answer for everybody's different, right? Like I have a background in film breakdown. So what I'm watching is different from what I might, or what, what I could tell somebody else to watch might be different from what they're able to watch in a game, what they're able to pick up. And so I think, uh, you know, one of the things I'll highlight here and you can disagree with me if, if you feel I'm wrong, but one of the things I'll highlight is I think the main thing is focus. And as a poker player, you get that practice of, you know, you have a 12 hour session or 16 hour session or whatever it might be. And you have to be able to click back into like a, a deep level of focus at certain points in that. And I think that a lot of people, when they watch games, they watch it and they cl- their brain clicks over almost to like an entertainment side where they just kind of casually watch a game, the game unfolds in front of them, but they're not picking up anything. And so the main thing to me isn't the specific stuff you're watching in a game so much as if you are focused and engaged. Like one of the things I always do, the I, even watching the condensed version where the plays come rapid fire is, okay, what down and distance is it? What formation is the offense in? What formation is the defense in? So that you are constantly getting a sense of how these teams are making their decisions throughout the game and throughout different downs and distances. And then one, one of the things I've talked about is watching the movement of the team as a whole, instead of any individual players and kind of get a sense of what each team is trying to do. So I'm curious, what are the things um, that you try to pick up or that you've found valuable in watching games? And uh, if you could kind of anything else that you have in your week with these 30 hours, right? Like how do you 
use that week toward being prepared for the slate. Um, and then, you know, like I said, that thing about focusing while watching the games, I think that's key. So I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. Okay. So um, I've been watching the games this year. Uh, and I started this towards the end of last year with an eye on, uh, I, I picked up on one of your podcasts about doing the live drafts. So I've been doing the live drafts and I've been making little money at it. It's small because, you know, the, the field sizes are small at, at, at everything but $1 and $5. So that's pretty much, I just do the $1 and $5 over and over and over. Unless I really just love a spot, um, I might do the $20 one. So uh, I've been watching the games with an eye towards that and kind of uh, seeing how scenarios play out as, you know, a team is winning or losing and what players they're going to use if they're winning or losing um, and trying to balance that with ownership. And that's where I've really learned a lot about how to build rosters is trying to kind of guess ownership um, in, in these uh, live drafts. And you get the immediate feedback of seeing on the screen what the actual ownership was. And so you're able to try and hunt like sharp plays that can still come in, but at really low ownership. And that's exactly the same thing you're trying to do in a big tournament. Um, so that's, and by being that focused on the game and and having investing, you know, $6 over and over, you know, you're putting a couple hundred bucks on a game um, and trying to beat it, um, you know, obviously you have to be focused. Uh, I'm not nearly as good at watching football as you are, so I don't understand all the formations and the things like that very well. Uh, but one thing I've always kind of been good at in my life, um, and if I had chosen to go in a different direction, might have been able to do, is evaluating talent. Um, I've always seen like across different sports, um, like, for example, I went to an NBA summer league game and I saw Bobby Portis playing his first summer league game. And you could just see that he was at a whole different level of all the other people on the floor. And I'm like, this guy's going to be a, a very good NBA player. And, you know, last year he contributed very largely to them winning the championship and just things like that. I, I seem to have a natural talent for kind of spotting uh, talented players. And that's how I saw like Huntley, you know, wasn't just the normal backup. He was a guy that could really come in and do something. Uh, let me, let me jump in real quickly. Uh, Cause two things here. One, the flash drafts, those live drafts you're talking about. It's one of those things where you know, I feel like if I say it on a podcast, everybody hears it and maybe four or 5% of people take action and do it. If I say it five or 10 times, maybe 10, 15% of people take action and do it. I cannot emphasize enough how valuable those flash drafts are in terms of like David saying, just getting practice, rapid fire practice at DFS theory, because I won't go through the whole explanation of what those flash drafts are, but basically there's three players on a screen and everybody in that tournament is picking one of those three players. And you're going to go through five screens like that and have to put together a team out of those five screens that can beat everybody. And so there's so much in here of like, how much is the field overrating their ability to predict what's going to happen in one quarter where there's a lot of variance in one quarter and how much can I take advantage of that by correlation and by just thinking differently than the field and being willing to lose in order to be able to win big. And so those flash drafts are an unbelievable training ground. And then uh, the other thing I wanted to highlight, David, before I flip it back over to you is the, you mentioning you being good at spotting talent. And I think that, there's a general tendency from our groupthink mentality that's sort of instilled in us from a young age in school where we all want to be the same as everybody else and being too different is perceived as a negative. 
is we kind of get bad at being capable of saying, hey, I'm good at X. We get pretty good at saying what we're bad at because that kind of gets emphasized throughout our lives by might be by parents or teachers or coaches or just our own personal selves being hard on ourselves of identifying things we're bad at and things we need to improve at. But really success tends to come from not trying to improve at the things you're bad at. A lot of times the things you're bad at are things that you're just naturally not going to be great at. So instead it's maximizing strengths so that your weaknesses kind of get minimized as a result. And so being able to identify and say, hey, okay, I'm good at this thing so I can use this to my advantage is it's almost like a unique skill to have because most people just aren't good at identifying and capitalizing on strengths. And so for listeners, I want to just encourage you to have that willingness to say, oh, hey, here's something I'm good at and let me leverage that to my advantage. So I think that's a really cool um, thing that you mentioned, a cool thing to highlight. Uh, so David, I'll go back over to you for for kind of more stuff on how you build your week and kind of uh, use that time. I, uh, first of all, I was nodding my head the whole time you were saying that because that's uh, that's something like I, I'm not as good at like math and theory as a lot of the other poker players, especially in the new generation. But what I'm able to do is just I have uh, some psychology talent and I'm able to just if I really focus and watch what the other players are doing, I can kind of predict what they're going to do before they do it. And that's just a God-given talent that I've you know, chosen to try and maximize. And, and you know, for all you guys listening out there, I'm sure you have different areas that you're talented at. And, uh, and you know, try and put those to use as you do DFS. 100%. Um, couldn't say that better. So uh, as I'm as I'm going through my process, um, I've had more time this year. I used to not dig into things until Thursday or Friday night. Um, I'll start. Um, and I loved earlier this year when you were doing the the podcast where you were doing the uh, the unique. Uh, I forgot what the term you used for, it, but where you would go through and uh, build without any other information um, and, and look at the games. And uh, and I would go through and, and and do that. I've done some of that myself i'll build a lineup like as soon as they release the pricing on like uh, monday or tuesday night and it's gotten harder because of covid um and all the scratches but um but i'll go through and build a practice uh roster now this particular week where i did so well um one thing that i i, I do is i try to take uh, i got in a routine where i would watch the game on thursday night do the live draft i'm a very late night person just due to all the years of poker. And so I'd still be wide awake when the game was over. Um, I, we have a jacuzzi tub here in the house that I used to play poker in. Um, I'd get into that and read the whole NFL edge, um, hopefully at one shot if I wasn't you know, too busy doing stuff with my wife and son. Um, I'd just you know, turn off all the lights, get focused, and just read the whole NFL edge and make my notes and everything uh, without really the intention of investing much money at that point. Uh, but what I always would do if I had the time and felt sharp enough is build a couple lineups right after reading the NFL edge. I remember uh, JMU talking about Cubs fan building it at different points in the week. And, and I thought that was really sharp um, to, to do that when you, and especially with me, I don't really know, uh, like I spend my weekends at the casinos. I don't know if I'm going to get tied up doing something and not have that mental energy later. So why not at least build a couple lineups while I'm, I know I'm in a good state. So I got in there and I built uh, two Tyler Huntley lineups, one of them with Bateman and one of them that wound up being the winning lineup. Um, and I put them in, uh, it was kind of funny. I put one of them in, uh, both of them in the play action for $3. And I put one of them in a $5 double up because it was just a lineup that I felt good about. 
and I was thinking about saving it for single entry. So I threw it in a double up that I usually don't even enter just to, to be able to see and know that it was a different lineup. And it wound up, uh, I got busy as the week went on. I found a, a, a machine that was well worth playing in the casino and I stayed up all night and I had to cram the last, uh, part of my work weekend, uh, reading the scroll and, uh, and listening to the Saturday podcast. And I, I slept like three hours. I set my alarm. I got up and I built my 20 lineups. That I usually build for the play action every week. And when I got done, there was like six minutes left before the, uh, before the games kicked. And I love the work I did. I really felt probably the best week I'd ever had process wise. Um, and I was like, well, I'd really like to put a little more money on these teams. All I have is like, $80 invested, um, uh, besides my single entry stuff. And so, um, I was very lucky that week, I guess, because of all the, the COVID stuff going on, uh, the, most of the major contests weren't full yet. So I took three of my favorite lineups, um, pretty quickly. I didn't really have a chance to look all that closely through them, but I took three of my favorite lineups and I put them in the Millie maker. I put them in the, the dollar one, the 25 cent one and the 10 cent one. Um, and then I took three other lineups that were kind of variations of those. And I put them in a last minute, like $8 tournament. And without doing that, I would have still finished uh, tied for second in the play action. And I would have won, you know, like 30, 33,000. Um, but by putting those lineups in at the very last minute, I wound up you know, winning almost 120,000. That's unbelievable. That's an unbelievable story. And I think that that I've talked before about, a lot of times on weeks when I'm traveling that I end up having uh, my best DFS weeks. And it's not because travel leads to better DFS weeks. I, I know Levitan used to always give me a hard time about ever leaving the house during football season because like, he's like, how do you do <laughs> yeah. that? Um, you know, and it's like, well, I've got family that lives in Massachusetts and Oklahoma. So, you know, <laughs> holidays, we're going to see them, but the um, that travel time, it it's almost like, well, the week gets tighter. And so my focus during my work times has to get sharper. And so I know that when I'm focusing on rosters, I have to be focused on, on rosters. And I think that's an interesting way for your week to have shaped up where you were basically, you were like, okay, well, I'm only going to get three, three and a half hours of sleep. And so I'm going to get up at this time on Sunday morning and get to work. Well, that kind of, it forces you to get into that focused state. And um, a question on that too, because you talked about, the hot tub thing, the jacuzzi thing, the, um, you know, Zandamir has talked about his hot tub. Sonic has talked about meditating. Uh, I, I think that there's this important aspect of stepping away from the mindset. That's just the numbers and just like, what's the most obvious player, what's the sharpest on paper play and all that and getting to that sort of creative and focused headspace. And so is that something that you have found an ability to sort of click over to pretty easily because of your years in poker and that, that need to be able to focus. And you talked to me before the show about that you, or maybe you said it on air that you have ADD or ADHD. Is there a, a, something that you've found that helps you like click over to that focus? Or is that just something that you think you've built up over time? It's hard to do. Um, it, it, it requires uh, willpower and, and, focus on your focus for lack of a better term. And uh, I know, you know, a lot of the OWS family has kids and, you know, I find a conflict a lot because I have a very flexible job, but uh, I want to be a good dad. I want to be a good husband. Um, 
and so when I'm at home, um, it, it can be kind of hard to like, I'm always a little mentally divided, even if I'm in the room where I work and I'm away from my wife and son, I'll be in the back of my mind. I'll be thinking, you know, well, I should be spending this time with my son or helping my wife or whatever. And, uh, by being out of the house, um, that kind of removes that and lets me and lets me focus in a way on on the thought I need to do. And then secondly, um, that that level of of getting into really deep thought, um, I found something I've had uh, my most successful showdown teams all this year have been when I read Zandamir's uh, write up. I'll make like a couple practice teams and then there's an hour drive between two casinos in North Carolina and I'll just get in the car and I'll put on music and I'll just spend the hour uh, where usually I'd be listening to podcasts. I'll spend the hour or at least part of the hour just thinking, just thinking, well, how could this game go this way? How could this game go that way? And the background of having watched enough games this year lets me be able to do that effectively. And and so it's just basically kind of removing all the external stuff that can get in your mind and letting your, you know, letting your brain work for itself and, and really get into a deep focus on, on things that aren't just, you know, math and math based, like what you were talking about. Yeah. I, I love that, especially the driving thing, the, and, and what you're talking about with the, I, I think that by and large OWS kind of collects men who i mean obviously we have some female subscribers but primarily male subscribers and generally ows tends to collect males who strive to be good humans and and good husbands and good yeah, I, I, I love that i love that about the community yeah and and i think that that is something that especially like you know i've talked about we moved out of the city and into like a house with a yard and everything but in our old place when when we just had william in our old place, my office was on the first floor and the living space was on the third floor. So there was this separation. If I was working, there was no noise. I could kind of put it out of my mind that I wasn't with the family. Whereas here, as you can potentially even hear in the background, the <laughs> house is like, you know, the, the sound travels. And so if I'm up here working, my thought is how important is this compared to the fact that I could be spending time with my family right now? If it's, if it's something that isn't necessary work, it's sometimes hard to justify it. So for me, one of the things I've found is, is night times, right? I mean, I've always been kind of a night owl as well, but that like kids are down by seven. My wife goes to bed at nine and like nine to one, nine to two has been my time to say, okay, it's quiet. Here's my time to focus. Um, Aaron Rotomaven, he gets up at 4.30 or five in the morning, but if he wakes up at like two, he just gets up because he figures that's a few more hours with the house quiet and time to kind of be able to focus and, and, and so, yeah, I think that, you know, there's no right answer here, but it's like finding times where you can be all in on what you're doing. And you also talked about kind of that pattern of reading Xandamere showdowns, going on that drive and using that time to think there's a certain element of, of patterns. You have to find when you're wanting to get into that deep focus state, you have to find an entry point. And so it has to either be some sort of pattern that tells your mind and body like, okay, here's what we're doing now. Or for me, if I, if I don't have something like that at the time, for me, it's just, I have to be quiet and let my mind wander over things that have nothing to do with what I'm wanting to point my thoughts toward. And then allowing my mind to wander and kind of following those thoughts deeply, I can then guide them back over to where I need to be once I get into that focused state, if that makes sense. But, uh, but yeah, finding those little things, it's like, okay, here's something I can do because it's going to be really hard to win a tournament building an unfocused roster 
Um, but being able to build in that focused state can help a lot. And um, so I think that's really cool that you brought up those things and kind of the ways that you go about that. Um, anything else to add on that? And then also uh, I want to ask about one of the questions I like to ask on these kind of roster recaps is were there any like points of discomfort on this roster that you were like, Oh, this is a little, I, I feel a little too queasy. I don't know if I can put this into play or have you kind of conditioned yourself to be able to say, okay, this is uncomfortable. That means it's good. Like where, where's that line for you? Uh, I, I guess you said you were like rushing to get these into some extra tournaments. So it sounds like you were able to get comfortable and confident with that level of discomfort, but how does that kind of all break down for you? I absolutely love the Huntley-Andrews combo. I mean, I think I think I like that as much as anything I've liked all year, which was why I wanted to invest more. Um, I did a, a, a recap podcast with Sonic on the uh, on the reflection tab, uh, it, and and he uh, we were talking about uh, did I maybe want a late swap because I had fire emojis with uh, Cooks and St. Brown and Parker and the Cowboys. Uh, and a decent game from Robinson on the early games. And, uh, and I was like, and I've, I have been tinkering with late swap this year. It's something I'm, I think can be a big edge, but on this roster, there was no way I, I loved what I had, um, with the, with the Huntley Andrews combo and Wilson was a, was a solid play. And, uh, Adams was just a natural bring back. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's been rare for me to have a huge weekend where I just felt comfortable and confident, but I also have this, I have this, um, like content provider side of my brain where I have to find what is the sharpest thing on paper and then break out of that to say, um, okay, well, you and I were talking about this before the show, right? Like Mike Johnson being on Xander and, and Hilo's podcast on Saturday, he brought up Ramondre Stevenson and the thought process there, which was if the Patriots win in a blowout, Damian Harris is dealing with this hamstring injury. They're not going to want to play him the second half of the game. They'll let him sit. And then Ramondre Stevenson will get all this work. He could end up getting 20 touches and that could lead to a two touchdown game. And we ended up seeing that play out, but that's nothing that you're ever going to find on paper that takes some creativity and thinking outside the box and saying, how could we find paths to first place? And so I think that there's this, for me, this content provider side that talks more loudly than the creative side sometimes. And so I have to be, I have to have that level of discomfort on my content provider side in order to have a truly great roster. But it kind of sounds like for you, because of the poker background and all that, like you're able to almost say, okay, yeah, like nobody's on Huntley, nobody's on these plays. And that is part of what makes me feel that much more confident. And then because I've watched this game, I've seen that I think this guy is much better than the field is going to realize. And if they're all going to feel uncomfortable, that makes me feel even more comfortable with, with this play. Does that kind of sound about right on your end? Yeah. So yeah, I was between the, you know, all the times that I've gone all in on a, a bluff or made a crazy call at the poker table. Um, you know, I've learned to to trust those things and you just have to go with it. And sometimes you're going to be wrong, but you know, uh, more often you're going to be right or, you know, certainly more often than, uh, you know, enough to give you EV. Uh, one thing I wanted to say is, uh, you're talking about, you know, being a content provider. You know, I've listened to all your podcasts and I love what you're doing this year by having, you have so many sharp contributors that you're able to free yourself up 
and just like we were talking about earlier, the unique talents that the different players have to, to win at DFS, you have your own set of unique talents and being able to emphasize those and maximize those and know that like, you know, Zandamir and Hilo uh, do such an amazing job with the, uh, with the kind of sharp mathematical EV standpoint, um, you're able to branch out and use your creativity and use your ability to watch games and film. Um, and then somebody like Sonic, who's great at, at building teams for big tournaments like the Millie maker. Um, I find his content so valuable, the unique thoughts of Larejo and, and, and Mike Johnson. I mean, by having such a, a good team at OWS and everybody can focus on their, their own strengths, and we as subscribers, we can pick out the different parts that we we like from the different subscribers and, and then add our own little talent to the mix. Man, I can't I can't tell you, you know, it's um, my brother in law once described to me starting your own business as as having a baby dragon. He said it's really cute <laughs> at first and, and you think you can manage it. And then all of a sudden it gets much bigger than you expect it to get. And it's hard to wrangle it. And that's kind of been my experience with OWS. Right. Like I, I had. I'm obviously I have good business sense, but it's not something that I am passionate about running a business. And so I got into it, not really being aware of everything that it would entail. And so it's been this cool journey that, you know, obviously a lot of you guys have been a part of, but being able to see like, okay, here's what we really want OWS to be. And here's what it's going to take for us to get there. And, and you guys having the willingness to go along for the ride too, where it's like, okay, you used to be subscribing for me providing all the content, but now it's like, you're subscribing for me providing less content but because I am providing less content, what I am providing is more valuable because it's better able to leverage what I'm best at. And then obviously there's more content as a whole with all of these other sharp players. And we're leveraging one of the things we do when we bring somebody on to write content or do a podcast, we always say to them, what do you want to do? We don't want to tell you what to write. We want to build around your strengths and what makes the most sense to you. And I think that that's really come through in the content uh, this year that everybody's like subscribers are able to find, okay, this is what clicks for me. This is what clicks for me. And obviously we have some more stuff we're wanting to do next year, some different things we're wanting to do with me, some different things we're wanting to add, but, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, guys like you who have been here since the beginning, which is a lot of the inner circle fam, it's, it's been a really cool journey to see like, okay, what do we really want this site to be and how do we build it into that? And, um, and yeah, like you said, finding the different voices. And I love that you bring up Sonic because I think that because Sonic is MME and a lot of our players are single entry, three entry max, a lot of people kind of skip over Sonic's content because like, oh, well, I don't play MME, but his reflection scroll article and his is above the field in the reflection scroll. And then his, um, his player pool and like his notes on the player pool is so sharp because you get to see how he's seeing the slate and how he's thinking through things. And so I think that's really cool that you highlighted him both, both before you and I hopped on air and then again, right there. But, um, but yeah, I, I told, I told Sonic that, that, uh, when, when I'm open on, on Sunday, if I have enough time to build, like I want to, um, I have his player pool open and I'm scrolling through it, uh, as, as I, you know, I'll have a core of a roster and I want to add in a couple plays. I'll just scroll right through his wide receivers or his running backs or his tight ends and read the little blurbs. And, and, and a lot of times that has put me on a play that I like. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'll say this too. I, I wouldn't be surprised if Sonic picks up a, a second Millie maker win here in the next year or two, because he really is so sharp in the way that he sees things con- like in terms of what gets you to first place. And so anything that we as players can leverage where we say, Hey, this person's putting all this work 
And here's a little piece that I can take from this person's putting all this work and here's a little piece I can take from them I think is, is really valuable. Um, David, anything you want to add before we get out of here? Uh, I just want to thank you for all the, you know, the work you've done over the years and, uh, you know, making us better DFS players. And it, you know, it, it, it's a really neat way to, uh, to make money. Um, and, you know, even before I, I had this score, I was always enjoying myself. Uh, I know that it's a great brain exercise and I get better and I learn and, uh, and I just, I, I find it a really entertaining way to, to try and make money where you could be, you know, doing something that's minus EV and, uh, and, and enjoying it. This is something that's plus EV and you're enjoying it. Yeah, it's plus EV. You're enjoying it. And as we've talked about it, it sharpens. I mean, obviously for you as a poker player, this is true, but for all of us, it sharpens DFS sharpens you in every other area of life. Cause you kind of start to see these strategic elements and the, the puzzle building elements that are inherent in so much of what we do and so much of the way our society is structured to, if you want to have personal success, whether that's financial or even like in personal relationships, just a lot of this stuff that you learn in DFS comes directly into play in things that you can do in those other areas. So like you said, you're, you're getting brain training, whether you're making money in the short term or not. And if you're doing this the right way, which I would guess that 80 to 90% of listeners are at this point, you are going to make money over the long run because you're playing in a plus EV manner. So um, yeah, it's so cool. And it's, it's been like, it's literally a privilege and, and a blast to be able to do this for a living. It's kind of, uh, uh, I guess this is a good time to say that because it's week 18. This is uh, right. the last regular season pod of the year. So we'll have, um, we'll have another uh, bonus since we missed last week. We'll have a bonus inner circle pod next week where I'll kind of tie up some thoughts and just hit on some things that I think can help you guys in the off season. But um yeah, David, thanks so much for hanging out. Really appreciate you being on the podcast, being part of the community, kind of keeping things, you know, everybody who's in Discord, obviously I'm not in there much, but everybody who's in there, like I think it's so valuable that you guys keep things going, keep conversation going and allow everybody an opportunity to bounce ideas and grow and learn and be part of this community. So uh, I want to thank you for that as well. Um, but yeah, I will close us out. And just say thanks to all of you for listening. Thanks for if you guys don't tune in next week. Thanks for being part of Inner Circle this year. As I mentioned, the OWS for Life, there are 70, what did I say, 77 of those remaining. So you know where to find that by this point. But um, check that out if you're interested in that. And with that, I will see you guys on the site throughout the week. And I will see you at the top of the leaderboards this weekend.